0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, we're, uh, we're two weeks in to 2013, which means about 23% of you are still going strong on your New Year's resolutions. Uh, you're still there. You still got hope. The rest of us, not so much. Uh, about half of Americans, of all Americans, make New Year's resolutions. And the other half don't make them because they just, they know they won't do them, so they don't even bother with it. Uh, but we in general love the idea of a fresh start. We love second chances, uh, and there's something in us that thinks that the tick of the calendar, the flip of the calendar, means that like this year really could be different, really could be better than it was last year. And I think God's into that. I think God is extremely interested in bringing about change in our lives. And so we're using our preaching time this month to talk about some of the areas of our life that we commonly make resolutions about, some of the areas that you right now want to see change come about in your life. And I think it's important for us to talk about that as a community, not to just let it be some kind of thing that Americans do, because deep down those desires are real. And one of the great challenges that we face in in personal growth and spiritual growth, for sure, is our tendency to compartmentalize our lives. Right? So we make life with God about church and overtly you know, spiritual activities. And then the rest of our life is like our business. So our work, our money, our bodies, our habits, our time. You know, that's, that's some stuff I got to just figure out, sort out, and get better at. As if God doesn't care about those things. And some of you may actually think that, but the truth is, is that God cares about those things more than you do. And God's able to bring about change in those things way better than you are able to. We've looked at a text the last couple of weeks at Matthew 6. um, And in that text, people are fretting about their money. They're fretting about their financial security. They're fretting about their health. They're fretting about what they're going to eat and wear. And Jesus says, why are you chasing after all of these things? Why are you fretting? Don't you know you have a Father in heaven who knows what you need better than you do? and who is actually able to provide for you better than you could on your own seek him first all that stuff he'll take care of that so god cares about these goals that we make and so we're asking the question what does the gospel say to these areas of life specifically to our work to our money to our body our habits and our time and how do the resolutions we make in those areas fit into the larger context of discipleship to Jesus? And so last week, uh, or two weeks ago, Jason talked about our work. And let me just quickly say, uh, Jason referenced this book, which I would love for you to pick up. We ordered uh, about five copies and they'll be on the resource table. We'd love for you to get it. It's cheaper on our table than it is on Amazon. Not a lot cheaper, but a little bit. So um, we'd love for you to pick that up if that's a subject of interest to you about how God's God speaks to your work, how your life with God is integrally related to your life at work. And then last week, uh, Todd talked about money, helped us step back and think about money from God's perspective. How do we orient our goals around money, our financial goals, uh, and how do we integrate them into God's priorities and God's kingdom? This week, we come to the topic of the body. Uh, I consulted a number of major newspapers around the country to try to get a feel for okay, what are the top resolutions that we make? They wouldn't surprise you, and it wouldn't surprise you that three of the top ten are explicitly about our body. This this thing right here, right? You know what they are, right? Eat better, exercise more, lose weight. Explicitly about our body, and most of the other ones, if not all of them, in some way have to do with our body, at least as a means by which we pursue those goals, and so. As a country, we are deeply concerned about our bodies. And I would say that is, that is a right concern. It is good that we are concerned about bodies, because God is concerned about our bodies. The problem isn't that we make goals related to our body. The, the problem really is the attitude and the motives that drive those goals. So, for example... The reasons we make goals related to our body are, are pretty straightforward, right? We want to we look a certain way, we want to feel a certain way, and we want to be a certain way. Like We want to be like healthy medically, whatever that means. We want to be that, right? That's all good. Those are good goals. But beneath those goals is the issue of motive. It's, it's the why even beneath the why, right? So do I want to look a certain way because I think God actually wants me to look that way or at least that I have freedom to look that way, or am I trying to conform to some cultural notion of beauty? In other words, am I trying to draw attention to God or trying to draw attention to myself? Do I want to feel a certain way Uh, because it would give me energy to serve God, it would give me a sense of confidence, it would be appropriate to what it means to be a child of God? Uh, Do I want to feel a certain way to, to enjoy and to serve God or to gratify myself and to serve myself? Even with health, like, do I want to be healthy because I want to take care of this body God's given me? Or, underneath that, is there a subtle fear of sickness and death? Ultimately, maybe I want control of my life. I want to secure health because I don't trust God to take care of me. So you see pretty quickly that this thing gets pretty mixed. And when you talk about motives, uh, we're never all, all black or all white, right? It's always gray. It's always a mixed bag of, of good and bad motives. Our goals can be good, but often without knowing it, our goals become our gods. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. You are seeking after, you are chasing after, you are preoccupied with these things. And his solution is, seek God above all these things. Keep God your God, and then these things will work out. But if you flip that, you don't get the things or God. A Westminster Confession says it this way. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Paul, Paul puts it even more plainly. He says whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so when it comes to things like exercise, diet, sleep, fashion, how do we glorify God with our bodies? right? There's three parts to my answer to that question. How do we glorify God with our bodies? Here's three parts. Uh, The first part of the answer is theological. Like, I think we have to just take a step back and say, okay, what does the Bible say about my body or our bodies, right? The second part is personal. In other words, how does that truth about what the Bible says affect my attitudes and my beliefs, how I feel about my body? And then the third part of it is practical. Okay, given all that, once I got that foundation in place, what do I do? Like, how do I pursue real change in my life with respect to my body? All right, that's a lot of stuff. So we're going to break it into two weeks. Uh, Today, we're going to deal with the theological, personal aspects. Next week, uh, we'll, we'll get really practical. So we're slated to talk about habits next week. All of that will apply to our bodies. In fact, most of the habits that we want to start and quit have to do with our bodies anyway. So... Really practical next week. Today will be a little information heavy, which nine of you are really excited about. The rest of you are like, oh, okay. All right, I know, I know what you want. I know you want the, the, what to do. I know you want the practical stuff. All right, but listen, that's part of our problem. Part of the reason we're so bad at actually following through on our goals is they're just entirely pragmatic in nature. They're not rooted in like a deeply theological, personal conviction about the subject. And Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as as a living sacrifice to God, he says, you do that first by renewing your mind. All right, so we've got to start there. We've got to start with a the theological foundation. Plenty of practical stuff next week, all right? Plus, that's how I get you to come back. Leave the stuff for next week. All right, let's start with this question. What does the, body, or the Bible say about our bodies? Here's how I'm going to answer that. There'll be a lot of ways to answer it. Uh, I just want to survey the biblical storyline, the story of the gospel, Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We're going to look at various texts so that we can kind of follow that storyline, but in each part of it, we're going to give special attention to the place of the body in the story of the gospel, not something that we typically do, but it's there. All right, so we'll we'll jump around a little bit, but we're going to begin in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, and I'll paraphrase some, but you can turn there if you want, although I won't tell you where to look, so it'll be really confusing. Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the body was good. It was made by God, right? There there is a personal artistry and tender care in the way that God fashions. He personally fashions their bodies himself. He breathes his breath into them. That's how they get life. And so the creation account of bodies is really intimate, and it affirms that they are good. They're made in the image of God. Uh, God Perfect design for our body. Uh, He gave us bodies so that we might uniquely, like in a way that even angels can't, express worship to God in our obedience and in our service. The most remarkable comment, I think, in the creation account about the bodies is at the end of Genesis 2, and it says that they were naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve were blissfully unaware, unselfconscious of their bodies. Like there was just perfect unity between their mind and their soul and their body such that all of it just worked together sort of without even thinking really in service and in worship to God. That is so so hard to imagine, right? Because that's not our world. Uh, In December, for reasons I can't explain, I wanted to try to run a mile as fast as I could. And um, I used to run, you know, in high school, I ran the mile I think I ran like five and a half minute mile one time, which I thought, yeah, I could probably, maybe 540, I could probably do it. And, uh, and so my mind believed it, right? My spirit was all there. And I even had JP out there with a, with a stopwatch and I just took off. And I made and that first lap was awesome. And as soon as I finished the first lap, I was like, okay, run walk strategy, let's do that. You know, it's seven and a half minutes. That's two minutes worse than what I thought I could do. What I did like, I think in the ninth grade, right? All right, so clearly there's not a perfect unity working in my body. I was very aware of the brokenness and the pain that I felt in my body. There was no bliss about it. All right? Our world is a fallen world. It's a broken world. That's our reality. And our reality begins in Genesis 3. Uh, they are tempted to disobey God's word, and they fall into that temptation. They give in and they do it. And when they do, sin enters the world. And sin corrupts everything in creation. Now, when we talk about the fall, normally we talk about the, the sort of um, spiritual, relational implications of sin. But if you read the text, uh, you see how much attention is given to the body. So, the mechanism of the temptation is food. He's just trying to get her to eat something. And with her eyes, she looks at the food, with her ears, she listens to the serpent's temptation. With her hands, she takes of it, and with her mouth, she eats of it. She gives it to her husband, who is physically there, and with his hand and mouth, he takes and eats also. And immediately, they feel the consequences of their sin in their bodies. Their eyes are opened, and they see their nakedness. They become self conscious, they are ashamed. They run and hide. They cover themselves with leaves. Do you see how radically sin affects our bodies? And how from the very beginning it distorts how we view ourselves and how we think and feel about the human body? When God judges their sin, again, the body is is central to the action. So the serpent is reduced to his belly, slithering around on his belly. Eve will experience pain, and childbearing. Adam will toil and sweat to get food now. It's overtly bodily. Uh, even in the measure of God's grace toward them, it's demonstrated in their body. He makes clothes for them. All right? I, I just want you to see how central the body is to all this. So whenever you have angst about like what to wear or how you look in your clothes or how you wish you had other kinds of clothes or could afford different sorts of things. It's just a reminder that your body is corrupted by sin. We weren't made for clothes. In creation, uh, we see that the body is good, and in the fall, we see that it's corrupted by sin. The, The defining characteristic of the fall, I want you to see this, is shame. And shame is a powerful motivator. Because we're born into, the, into a fallen world, we all carry with us some shame about our bodies. And so when shame is the driving force behind your goals for exercise or diet, uh, really what you're trying to do is, is you want to look a certain way or feel a certain way, in part at least, to cover up the shame you feel about your body. It's not about God, it's about you. Your hope is that by achieving that goal, then the goal will save you somehow. will take away the shame that you feel. In creation, we get what we need from God. In the fall, our bodies actually become a means by which we try to gain, achieve acceptance, approval, success, power, and so on. Our goals become our God's. Have you ever noticed in yourself or in others, it's easier to notice things in others, um, when people start a new diet just as, or a new exercise program, just as, like, as innocent as it could be, you ever you notice how quickly they become very obsessed with it? How like all of the thoughts are counting calories and thinking of sizes and designating everything, and they become more comparison-oriented than they were before? Have you ever noticed that? Listen, being obsessed about health is actually not very healthy. It causes all kinds of other issues, like anxiety for one. right? Judgmentalism for another. So we should pursue health, but when it becomes your God, it distorts everything. That's what happens when shame is the motivator. Our struggle with uh, our bodies actually goes deeper than that, or it's more than that, right? Not only are we ashamed about our bodies in some way, we're actually enslaved to our bodies in some way. Ephesians 2, which Kendall read uh, for absolution, but just before that, Before the good news is the bad news. Here's Paul's description of who we are apart from Christ, our condition. He says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, notice this language of following, of of being sort of uh, enslaved to, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. That, that's the condition apart from Christ, is that we are, whether we know it or not, enslaved to the passions of the flesh which reside in the various parts of our body. In other words, our bodies are just willing servants to the sinful desires that govern us. Um, you could take hunger as an example. All right, so hunger, the desire for food, is a good desire that is meant to serve us. But when sin captures it and distorts it, then that desire can become gluttony or um, bulimia or anorexia or any other host of things that would make us slaves to that desire. Uh, The desire for sleep is a good desire that's meant to serve us, but when sin captures it, uh, it can lead to sloth or laziness. It can distort the intended purpose. The gospel sets us free from the dominion of sin. So if apart from God, we are governed by sin, the gospel breaks that, the power of sin to govern us and actually sets us free uh, to obey God. God gives us new desires for righteousness and he gives us his spirit by whose power our bodies are enabled to actually act according to our new desires, right? So jumping ahead a little bit, but that's redemption. But you have to see that to see the nature of what it means to be in the fallen condition. Here's what Paul says in Romans 6. This is how he would sum it up. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having, listen to this, having been set free from sin, You've become slaves of righteousness. Look, we're all slaves. Apart from God, our bodies are enslaved to the desires of sin. And with God, we become slaves of Christ. It's a battle, though. Right? So even though there's this marked change, the power of sin is broken in our lives. The presence of sin is still there. It still lingers around. It still wages war against us. This is, this is what Paul says just in the next chapter, Romans 7. He says, look, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire, or I have new desires now, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, that's what I keep doing. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. So the power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin is still there, still lurking. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay? So, apart from God, we are enslaved to sin. In Christ, in our redemption, uh, the power of sin is broken, but there is still a battle that that wages. You could think of it as sort of a a leftover residue of sin still present in our bodies, working against these new desires that we have. Uh, Much of our frustration in spiritual life has to do with the fact that what we want to do, our body is not readily willing to do. So, when I come home from work, I want to come home with a smile on my face. I want to hug my wife. I want to play with my kids. I want to do whatever needs to get done around the house. But actually, I'm, I'm stressed about things at work, and I wear my stress on my face. And so instead of a smile, I kind of have this, you know, like last night at dinner or two nights ago at dinner, I was thinking about something, distracted, and, but I was focused like toward Holden's food. And Holden just goes, Dad, why are you staring at my food? I'm wearing that distraction, that stress on my face. And instead of cleaning the kitchen, what my body is telling me to do is like to go lay on the couch. My body's saying, dude, you're tired. You worked hard. You should go lay down for a while. She'll take care of it. So I have these desires, but my body's not ready to act it out. There's a war there. Last week, I was eating lunch with Micah and Kendall at Zocalo. Now, I love chips and salsa. It's like my favorite food, all right? And of all the chips and salsa in Austin, Zocalo is right up near the top for me. I love, love Zocalo chips and salsa. And so I'm eating chips and salsa with Micah and Kendall, and I'm eating a lot of them. And I eat them really fast for some reason, like they're going away. But they'll keep bringing you new baskets if you ask them. But I'm getting through them. And at some point, it occurs to me, like, hey, I should stop, like, the good part of me, my inner being was saying, hey, don't keep eating these chips because you're going to feel really sick in a minute. You've got work to do this afternoon. And then there was some part of me that was saying, also, you're, you're preaching on this this Sunday. Like, you don't want to lose on this before you get up there, right? But my taste buds were saying, no, 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 keep going. My taste buds were saying, dude, order another basket. I mean, Kendall and Micah need some too, you know? They had finished a long time ago. It was like, in, it was like near me now. Had all both the salsas near me, all right? We have desires, but the body's not always readily willing. Every day, there are so many ways in which our body fights against what we know to be good, what we want to do to obey God. So, one problem is that we're motivated by shame. Another problem is that even when we have the right desires, our bodies work against us. But there's good news. Uh, It's the next part of the story, which I've already alluded to, which is even though our bodies are corrupted by sin... Our redemption in Christ very much includes our bodies. God cares about it, and that's part of what he is redeeming. In the New Testament, the goodness of our body is affirmed, uh, most pronounced by the incarnation of God in the flesh. John, speaking of Jesus, says that Jesus, the word of God, became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Colossians, Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. And so Jesus took on a physical body. He ate and slept and touched and talked and walked and worked and cried. He was, he was physical in his life. His, his naked body was hung on a cross. Nails were driven through his hands and through his feet. He was pierced in his side with a spear and his dead body was put in a tomb and three days later he rose bodily from the dead and he appeared to lots of people. He talked with them, he ate meals with them, they touched him. Uh, Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is insanely physical. It's spiritual too but it's physical which is really important. Jesus was not only our example, he was our savior. So what he did in his life is an example for us of how we glorify God in our bodies. Like, like we use our bodies to dominate and to gain power over people, to manipulate them. Jesus was meek. People kind of had his way, their way with him. He actually triumphed through weakness. We use our bodies to draw attention to ourselves, but Isaiah says this about Jesus. He said he, as he foretold him, he said he had no beauty that we should look at him, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, often at the heights of attention and acclaim that Jesus gets, he he pieces out, like he withdraws. And Peter goes to find him, like Jesus, come on, this thing is getting rolling, come on. And he's like, hey, I got other, I got other priorities. Fame, I'm not here for fame, I'm not here for attention. We treat our bodies as though their primary purpose is sensuality. We treat them as a the pleasure source and. Jesus enjoyed good food and good wine. He enjoyed pleasure, but he was not enslaved to it by any means. He denied himself often. We act as if we're autonomous. Like, it's my body, I can do what I want. But Jesus, the Lord of the universe, submits himself to the Father. Makes himself a servant to men. To the point that he actually gives up his body in death on a cross. We tend to avoid people that aren't appealing to us. Jesus does just the opposite. He looks for them. He touches the leper. He dines with the outcasts. He heals the sick. We act as if the body is temporary, but Jesus not only rose bodily from dead, but made it a point of his teaching that he will raise us up bodily as well. So in his life and in his death and his resurrection, we have an example of the immense value of the body and its place in our redemption. More than that, he's not just an example. He's a savior. So Jesus, uh, let me me say it this way. We tend to try to save ourselves or change ourselves from the outside in. And Jesus shows us that real change, real salvation is inside out. And so we tend to work, and when we talk about self-help projects, we tend to think about external factors that we manipulate to exert pressure on our life in some way so that it might bring about change. And that, has some value. Uh, But what God says is like in Romans 8, God will say, no, I'm going to put my spirit in you and he will give life to your mortal bodies. So you will be able to do more than you could do on your best day. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives and works in you. It's inside out. So just think about how we think about uh, appearance or beauty. We have an issue of mistaking or confusing prettiness and beauty. It's like we think about beauty as, as purely an external thing. It's, 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 it's what's pretty. But over and over, God says, no, what's beautiful is really what's on the inside. It's the qualities of godliness and character that make a person beautiful. The external stuff is fleeting. Like, it's nice, but it goes away really fast. I always tell guys in their 20s that they're, the stuff they're looking for women is the stuff that changes. They need to look for the stuff that doesn't change. that it gets better with time. I have a friend who tells a story about his wife, and they've got grown kids that are out of the house, and he says, you know, my wife has wrinkles all over her face. And when he starts the story, it's really uncomfortable. It's like, no, dude, no, 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 don't. Uh, You don't want to say that. Because he starts going into some detail about it, and it's like, no, come on, for real, man. Come on, you know, Internet, you know. But the punchline of the story is that he says, It's beautiful. Because you know why my wife has wrinkles all over her face? Because she's been smiling for 20 years. She brings so much joy and life to our house through our smile. My kids' life is markedly different because they have a mom who does nothing but smile and bring joy to their life. And those wrinkles remind me of that. And they are beautiful. Far more beautiful than the prettiness of smooth skin gospel works inside out. And as long as we're trying to think about our bodies outside in, we will miss the gospel. All right. That's the place of the body in the story of the gospel. And um, we're going to have to do this really quickly. And the text that Andy read in 1 Corinthians uh, is just a case that I wanted to show you where Paul applies that story, all those truths that we just discussed, to a particular situation. And uh, we won't have to be able to go through this in much detail. Uh, But the issue here is that people are using their body in dishonoring ways. And uh, Paul is saying like, look, you you can't just use your body however you want because it belongs to God now. And so in the first few verses, he lists this list of uh, really atrocious sins. And then he says, and such were some of you. And I think Paul is tapping into that shame that we all carry. You all have done things to your body and, and done things with your body that you're ashamed of. And Paul's not just doing that to condemn them. He's doing that because if you don't deal with the shame, you won't experience lasting change. And then he speaks a better word. But you were washed. So the the filth of shame that was on your body was washed. You were sanctified. You used to be set apart for the enemy and for sinful desires, and now God has sanctified you. He has set you apart unto himself as his treasure. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All the ways that you were trying to make your life okay, all the ways that you were trying to present yourself as respectable by the appearance of your body, none of that saves you. God alone justifies, saves, and sanctifies you. That's your hope. And so no longer do you have to set goals based on shame or fear. You can now set goals about your body that are based on thankfulness and love. That's really what Paul is going to get to in this text. Good goals begin with good news. So Paul starts there. Listen, washed, sanctified, justified. Get that. Once you are at rest in that, then you can start setting really good goals for your body. All right, so here's a couple attitudes uh, in this text. Verse 12, they would say, this is a little slogan that would go around Corinth, all things are lawful for me. I got freedom in Christ. I'm not bound to dietary laws and new moons or anything like that, right? I can do whatever I want. There's freedom in the gospel. And Paul says, okay, yes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And I will not be enslaved by anything. And what Paul's saying is that, yes, there's a measure of freedom in the gospel, but gospel freedom is not so that you can just do what's good for you, but you're actually free now to think about what's good for others, what's helpful. Gospel freedom uh, is not just about enjoying food and drink and exercise however you want. It's about enjoying it without becoming addicted or enslaved to it. And so if you justify your addictions by freedom, you're not free. You're enslaved. Verse 13, another attitude, another saying. They would say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Right? What they're saying is, look, this is just like a composition of neurons firing and charging. And the body just has cravings. It has desires and urges. And like our version of it would be, look, if it feels good, do it. People say that all the time. That's the statement. If you're hungry, eat. If you want to do anything else with your body, just do it. It's okay. It's just... What's really important about you is not the body, it's what you think and believe. That's what's important. It's a dichotomy of your personhood, of your body and your spirit. But we've already seen that those things go together. Uh, Paul's response to them is in that verse, he says, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, no, 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 no. Uh, The body is not just for gratifying cravings. The body is for the Lord to worship and serve him. And the Lord is for the body. In other words, it has value. He cares about it. The general attitude here is that what I do with my body is my business. And then I just want you to see in the last few verses of this the the weight of what the gospel says about your body. Verse 15, Paul says, Our bodies are members of Christ. Whoever is joined to him is one spirit with him. So just think real practically about if Jesus was physically present with you, how that would change what you do with your body. That's what Paul's saying. No, he is with you. You are one spirit with him. That ought to affect what you do to and with your body. Verse 19, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In some way, our bodies are the point of contact in which God interacts with this world. Verse 20, our bodies belong to God. He says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, here's the big idea. Glorify God with your body. That's the ultimate motivation for resolutions related to diet, exercise, fashion, sleep, weight, whatever. How will you glorify God with your body? All right, let me, let me summarize because we've done a lot. The body's good. It's corrupted by sin. And the major marks of that are the shame that we feel and the ways in which we're enslaved to the desires of the flesh but our bodies are redeemed in Christ. Uh, There's an initial redemption that happens in which the power of sin is broken, but ultimately, in the consummation of our redemption, our bodies will be completely redeemed. We didn't really cover that, but in the consummation of all things, whatever shame you feel because of sin will be completely gone. Sin itself will be completely gone. Sickness, disease, all of that completely and entirely eradicated from your body. Your body in the glorification of your body will be so strong, so healthy, so beautiful in in categories that you don't even have for strength and health and beauty. And you will be totally unaware of that because you'll be consumed with the bodily presence of Jesus. Blissfully unaware. That's what God's taking us to. So how should we make goals related to our body? Well, good goals start with good news. And the good news is you belong to God so you can give thanks for your body. That alone will be enough for some of you. You'll have a really hard time doing that. Just go stand in the mirror and look at yourself and say, God, thank you for this. It's not saying, whoa, check me out, God. (laughs) Good job. With all of your flaws and with all of your weaknesses, it's saying, God, thank you that I have a body and that you're for it. You spend one week in Guatemala, you'll be real thankful for your body. (laughs) It's incidental, but our concerns, our obsession with bodies is such a first world thing. It's ridiculous. So give thanks for your body. To those of you that tend toward neglect, like thinking the body is just physical, it's not that big of a deal, you can realize that the body matters, like you have to take care of it. And for those of you that tend toward obsession and worship of the body, you need to hear that you have to take care of the body, but you're not in control of it. It's not yours. It belongs to God. You don't have to fret about it. The bottom line is that your goals related to your body should be about enjoying God. Enjoy God's creation. Enjoy worship. Uh, In Scripture, worship is a very bodily thing. People raise their hands, they kneel, they dance, they lay on their face. You can enjoy all of that in your body. You can enjoy food and drink without being enslaved to do it. You can deny your body and enjoy it because it's good for someone else. You can enjoy using your body to serve God and others. All right, The gospel sets us free to enjoy our bodies and not be enslaved to them. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.